just in case you're visiting. I don't normally do everything. It's just one of those weeks. <laughs> and in fact, I spy some of you out there who could have been doing this this morning. Don't know quite where that, what went wrong there, but anyway. So, Nehemiah, last one. It was reasonable. <laughs> so, um, we, may, we may yet spring, spring a couple more chapters on you, I guess. Um, I, uh, I was thinking this week, what out of chapters 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, because I wasn't going to do all of them, I was going to cover. And uh, for those of you that have been traveling with us through this series on Nehemiah, we've been thinking about rebuilding walls uh, because we've bought the property next door and it needs some renovation of a serious nature, uh, but also about restoring people because it's never about buildings it's always about people. It's always about the community of God and what we're doing together and our identity in Christ. Whenever you start a series, you have a concept in your mind of what you think is going to be achieved through the series. I think that's broadly a good thing. And more often than not, God surprises you. More often than not, he says, oh yes, well, it was on my agenda, but what you thought was on my agenda wasn't exactly what was on my agenda, so here have this instead. And through Nehemiah, the thing that God has really been speaking to us about, apart from the things that we anticipated, was prayer. And again and again, through the chapters of Nehemiah, the strong message has been around prayer. So I kind of felt that it would be good for us this morning to conclude looking at this prayer and some stuff around prayer that we can take forward uh, into the things that God has for us into the future. So when we get to this stage, and, uh, and Martin preached so well on this last week, and really, really sadly his sermon didn't record, which is really frustrating. Well, now I've really upset you all, haven't I? Um, the walls had been built in 52 days Nehemiah had got this ragtag bunch of non-builders to build the walls of Jerusalem. 52 days, if only. And then they come together as God's people for what it's really about, which is around their identity. And they read, or the Levites read to them the Torah, the five books of Moses, and they listen to it, and in response to their listening, a little bit later, not absolutely immediately, they respond with this awesome prayer to God that's in chapter 9. And it's a really, really long prayer, hence why I'm not going to read all of it, but I want us to kind of read through it as we go along. I want to see what this prayer teaches us about prayer and how to pray. So the first thing about this prayer that is absolutely obvious, is that it is radically biblical. And the word radical comes from the Latin word for root. So all that I want to say today is about how our prayer should be rooted, where their depth should be, where they get the source from. So they're not all kind of airy-fairy up there, that they're rooted deeply in some significant things. And the first is that they should be radically biblical. Scripture... This is God's revelation of himself. God speaks to us directly through the stories of the way that he deals with his people. God speaks to us. We respond. He responds. 
It's relationship. That's what it's all about. Not a dry and dusty book of pages of words. It's about God speaks. He reveals himself. We respond to that. He responds to us. It's relationship. This prayer is rooted in Scripture. It's rooted in the story of God with his people. So please take your Bible and, uh, and go with me because I'm going to zoom through it. So verses 5 and 6 that I read to you remind us that God is the creator. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, all the starry hosts, the earth, everything in them, the seas, everything in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. He is creator. Much of our response to God comes out of that truth that he has made us in his image, male and female, in his image. He's made everything. He gives life to everything. He sustains everything. Then they go on to Abraham. God called Abraham. He chose him. He took him from the Chaldeans and brought him to the promised land. He made him a nation because of the covenant that God had made with him. God brought life from barrenness. He brought a nation out of nothing. God chose him. He called him. He kept his promises to Abraham. Then verse 30, and then after that, sorry, it goes into the Exodus. Another massive uh, story for the people of Israel that confirmed who they were. They were taken out of Egypt, out of slavery, rescued from Pharaoh. You never compete with a baby. <laughs> In any way. <laughs> oh, poor Jesse. Luke's happy now he's left the sermon. God opened the sea. They walked through it. God did miraculous things, protecting them, providing for them, delivering them. And then he continues in verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, decrees and commands that are good. That's a lot of words we don't like in one sentence there, isn't it? You made known to them your holy Sabbath, etc., etc. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. In their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go and take possession of the land. God starts to shape their identity out of Egypt by the Ten Commandments, all the laws and regulations that helped them to live as the people of God. When they were hungry, he fed them. When they were thirsty, he gave them water to drink. He took them through the wilderness to the promised land. And then verse 16 in the prayer. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked. I love that word. I don't love being it but I love the word, and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen, failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Here we have the not so great bit of the story, that they went against God, that they cast an idol, a golden calf, that they worshipped him. And there is that bit of the story too, rooted in the scriptures. Verse 19, God takes them into the wilderness. He leads them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Again, he sustains them. And then verse 22 
You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. And we have this story now of the kingdom, of the kings and the promised land. And then from verse 26, this pattern of rebellion. They were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind them. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemy. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. And we have this pattern over and over again of rebellion against God. Of going away from him. Of poor leadership. Of exile. The pattern that encompasses the judges and the Syrians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They have had a five to six hour sermon on the Torah. So don't complain. (laughs) Nehemiah preaching the Levites amongst the people, because it's really hard to preach to 42,000 people without PA, explaining the Torah, getting them to grips with the stories of God in his word that many of them had probably forgotten or had become unfamiliar with. Out of that, they pray. Out of that, they pray. And prayer so often comes out of engaging with Scripture. We pray and we read Scripture. We study and we meditate and we pray as things come to mind. Right, I'm going to challenge you. How many of you find prayer a little bit difficult sometimes? Okay. One of the most helpful things about praying is to read Scripture. Put your hand up if you find reading the Bible difficult at some times. Okay, well, that's less of you. That's kind of good. <laughs> I think we stress too much. I mean, that's like a deeply theological term, isn't it? We stress too much. Take the Bible, read a bit of it, respond to it to God. That's prayer, by the way. Read a bit more of it, respond to God a bit more. Let him speak to you. Hang out a bit. Okay, it's not really that hard. We make it really hard. Take a psalm. Read a couple of verses. Put it in your own words. Listen to what God is saying. Read some more verses. Think about how that connects with your life. Pray about it. Read some more of it. Think about how that impacts the world. Talk to God about it. Do you think you could manage that? See, it's not that difficult, but actually... It's my microphone. I'm still working. No. Prayer and scripture together is a wonderful thing because God is speaking, we are speaking, he is speaking, we are speaking. It's called a relationship. And it's really, really good. Scripture is not about information, but about transformation. It's not about how many theology degrees you can get, but about how the word of God impacts and transforms your life and your experience and everything that you're um, coping with. We pray according to God's word. He has started a conversation for us to get involved in. And that's really exciting. Now, let me just give you a little warning. This is not an excuse for you to show off in your prayers how many Bible verses that you know. I'm sure that we have found ourselves in prayer meetings on occasions where we have listened for an inordinately long time 
while someone has recited the amount of Bible verses that they know. Now, this is not saying that you shouldn't say any Bible verses in your prayer, because that's quite important, but perhaps not to do it with the apostrophes and the reference. (laughs) It's more about, isn't it, prayer that is saturated in God's words, where we find ourselves saying, God, you said this. God, you said the other. God, your word says this. I'm reassured by this. I feel confident because of this. It's that kind of saturation in the things that God says that leads us to prayer that's saturated in the things that God says. It's about prayer that's consistent with the things that God says. Not just praying anything out there. I suppose we can say that, but prayer that's effective is consistent God, you said this, so therefore I can trust you. God, in this situation, you talk to your people about this. I'm in that situation. Can you deal with me in the same way? God, you've shown yourself to be this kind of God, so I trust that you'll be that kind of God for me. Do you you get it? It's that kind of prayer that's consistent with what God says. And somewhere in there, and perhaps we need to do this a little bit more, it's calling out to God on the basis of his words. We have somewhere a poster that keeps falling off the wall that says, if my people will humble themselves and pray and come back to me, sorry, my translation's gone askew, you know, then I'll hear from heaven. It's saying, God, we're here. God, we're humbling ourselves. God, we're coming back to you. God, we confess our sin. Hear us. Because you said that you would. Seems to me that when we think like that, Scripture comes alive and prayer comes alive. And God, by his Holy Spirit, engages with both and us. And exciting things happen. We need prayer that is radically biblical. I don't know whether this ever happens in your family, but um, sometimes we can all be in our kitchen and... The telly's on or the radio's on and somebody's on the phone, normally me, Um, and somebody's speaking. Somebody's speaking somewhere. And eventually his little voice, normally is the littlest voice in our family, says, are you listening? I'm talking to you. And normally I say, oh, I didn't realize you were talking to me. Because there's lots of voices in our family and often they're talking to someone else. And sometimes I just don't realize that They're talking to me. Our prayers need to be also radically God-centered. Some of us, I think, feel that we are praying into space. Just praying up to the sky. Not praying into any one particular. Perhaps we're kind of hopeful that someone is listening. A little bit like Joel often is in our kitchen, kind of hopeful that someone is listening. Occasionally they are. Perhaps we pray, but we don't know, or we don't even care who we're praying to, actually. We're just praying. And prayer has become quite a popular thing. So on social media and even on interviews and the news context, people say things like, we send our thoughts and prayers. And I think, well, who are you praying to? Because don't appear to have a particular relationship with God, of any brand particularly, Prayers is a kind of thing like bless you or blessings. or it, it just, It's a nice thing to say, but who is it to? Who are we praying to? This prayer is radically God-centered. 
50 times in this chapter, it says, Lord, God, or referring to the Lord or the God, you or your. That's two times verse, pretty much. That's quite a lot, isn't it? And then, as Dave said, in this chapter in verse 17, it says these words, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Where did they get that from? They got it from the Torah, from Exodus 34 and verse 5 to 7. Why did they get it from the Torah? Because they'd just been listening to it. They'd been listening to the scripture and they're praying in according, accordance with the scripture to God. Let's look at that verse again. You are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. If you struggle to make your prayers God-centered, take this verse. And depending on what kind of a person you are, maybe you could take the forgiving bit and perhaps you could paint or draw something that kind of connected you to that word. Some of you are looking really worried now. If you're a spider diagram-y person, perhaps you could take your spider diagram and your multiple colored pencils, Amanda, um, and write down all the words that connect to the word forgiving. Or write down all the verses that you can look up in your thesaurus. By the way, you don't have, uh, not thesaurus, what they call those things? Concordance. Um, that you don't need to know what they are. You can look them up. Write all the verses that talk about God forgiving us. Write down all the stories in the scripture about when God forgives somebody. Write down your story of when God has forgiven you. And then take the next verse, gracious. Think about all the grace-filled ways that God has related to his people, about the graceful ways he's related to you, about all the verses that talk about his undeserved love, his mercy, his grace. Think about him being compassionate, that he suffers with you. Maybe you want to draw a picture. It doesn't have to be a great picture. It can be a stick person, a stick person of you and a stick person of God walking together through what your valley is at the moment, suffering with you, walking with you. Maybe you might need to take some pictures out of the newspaper and stick them onto a page and pray for people who are walking through challenging times that God would be compassionate to them. Are you with me? You know, there's so many ways that we can help each other, help ourselves to be focused on God in our prayers and to get to grips with Scripture and God's character and the story of his work with us. Slow to anger. Oh dear. I mean, me slow to anger is about half an hour, I would reckon. That's on a good day. You know, God waited like years, decades. I mean, that's properly slow to anger, isn't it? How does that make you feel? When you mess up, when you get it wrong again, that God is slow to anger. That he's just waiting for you to turn around and say, here I am, and abounding in love. It says in 1 John that he's lavished his love upon us. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us. How do we know how much he loves us? Have you been back to the cross recently? Have you knelt down figuratively or literally and just looked at Jesus and gone, how much do you love me? 
This prayer is so focused on God. It's not trying to manipulate him or get him on side. He's already on side. It honors him. It glorifies him in this prayer. I don't know about you, but when I focus on God, I, I hesitate to say I feel better, but like life gets in perspective. I find my right place in the whole picture, and the people start to find their right place. Their life becomes orientated around him. Let me ask you a question. I realize that this will sound like a judgmental question. It is not supposed to. If other people listen to your prayer, I don't mean the out loud ones necessarily, because that's when you're trying harder, isn't it? The other ones. What would they learn about God? That he's amazing. Well, that's good, isn't it? What would people learn about God if they were to be able to eavesdrop on the prayers you pray? It may be simply that they'd learn that he's the safe place in your life. If your main prayers are help, or versions of that, they would learn that he is the safe place that you turn to. What would they learn from the prayers that you pray? When we see God for who he is, we see ourselves for who we are, don't we? For better or worse. And this prayer reflects a radically honest approach to our sin. To our sin. We often say, well, it was just a little mistake, wasn't it? Or, uh, I didn't mean to offend you, but... Followed by a string of self-justification normally. <laughs> or, it's just my personality, I can't help how I am. Or, we blame other people. It's quite hard confessing our sin, isn't it? It's quite hard agreeing with God about what he says about us. They are really honest. Arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. You warned us time and again, but we became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. Sometimes we just have to do that, don't we? We have to agree with God. It's not about comparing ourselves to the person sitting next to us, who, depending on who you've chosen to sit next to, might be better or worse than you. It's about comparing ourselves with Jesus. And he is perfect and holy. Anyone want to own to being perfect and holy? It's just how it is. And in this prayer, they agreed with God 20 times. We, us, or our, or they, meaning the generation who'd come before. And they identified themselves as part of that generation. Verses 16 to 17, 18, 26, 28, 30, 34. Sin affects how we are. Our hearts, our minds, our motives, our intents. I am the center in sin. Sinners are those who've fallen short of the glory of God. That's what it says in Romans. We are not how we are made to be. Made to be the glory of God. When we fall short of that, we are not how we're made to be. We've missed the mark using that metaphor of the um, archer with the arrows aiming for the target. We've missed the mark. We haven't hit the bullseye. If you're me, you've normally hit something on a wall over there. Completely missed the mark. We have not lived under his lordship all of the time, have we? And we need to be honest with God. That's part of our prayer. 
actually it's so releasing to say to God, yes, I am like that. Help me now, isn't it? And they are radically repentant. We've said this so many times, the Greek word metanoia means to change your mind, that 180 degree turn, not just mere confession, not emotion I feel really bad about, not some kind of self-righteousness like the Pharisees basically confessing their sins to make themselves look good because they were confessing their sins, some distorted thing like that. But an exchange, a turning around, we exchange our sin for forgiveness. Who doesn't want to do that? We exchange our lives living how we want for living under his lordship, the best possible way to live. It's like a Copernican revolution. We are no longer the sun around which the planets revolve, orbit. He is, and we orbit around him. He is the Lord. And so often we see, both in Scripture and outside of it, that repentance is the key to revival, turning ourselves around to follow the rule, the lordship of Christ is the key to revival. It was for Nehemiah, it was for Jonah, it, some, it often is for people personally. And it is historically that repentance is an absolute key thing in terms of an openness to the Holy Spirit of God coming and transforming and bringing revival, not just to the people of God, but beyond that. So this is a prayer that was radically biblical, God-centered, honest about sin, and transformingly repentant. It was a good prayer, I think we shall say. It was a good prayer. And it led to change. Because they wanted to renew the covenant. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement. We're putting it in writing, and we're fixing our seals to it. That's why business contracts are written down, because it makes them more solid. That's why we think that marriage is a good idea, because we write it down and we bind ourselves to that. And they made this covenant, and I just want to touch on it for a few moments, because I think it's important, and it comes out of their reading of Scripture, and they're listening to it, and their prayer, because it leads to action, the foundation of their covenant. And the covenant, interestingly, is signed by the priests, sorry, agreed to by the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all who separate themselves from the neighboring people, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand. It rarely says that, actually. It names all the people, it includes women as well, and it includes children, which is unusual. Everyone who could understand that the Lord God was king and that they needed to submit their lives to him, everyone signed. That's why we got kids to sign the back there as well. We wanted to include everyone, everyone in that. Their foundation was obeying God's word. Verse 29. All these now join their brothers and nobles, bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. It is becoming increasingly easy not to live in obedience to the Lord's words, because more and more people are not. 
It is challenging to commit ourselves to live under the authority of his word. It is easier not to. So it's our choice too. Will we do that? Do we want to do that? Is this of first importance to us in the way that we live our lives? To live in obedience to the word of God, rightly understood, rightly interpreted, and all that stuff. But are we committed in our hearts to live in obedience to the things that God says? Because they were. Secondly, in verse 30, it says, We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Their second commitment was to lead their families in God's way. Now, this was a really key thing for them because the intermarrying with the surrounding nations had been a primary reason why they'd been led into worshipping other gods and not submitting to the word of God and his law for them. So this was a key thing around distinctiveness and holiness. It was one of the main things that had compromised them. Now, I thought I might tell you a little story because I think you'd find it amusing. When I was growing up, in the youth group that I grew up in, we were very clearly told not to be yoked with unbelievers. I don't know whether some of you had that as well. Which being interpreted meant, don't go out with any non-Christian boys. All right, That was the brief version. So, now you're looking really interested in a way that you haven't for the whole of the rest of the service. <laughs> so, I'm... As you probably know, I'm a reasonably kind of conscientious kind of person who listens and, and, and was more obedient then than I probably am now. Um, and uh, so when I was 13, there was a boy called Simon, Simon Miller. Simon's brother Sebastian was my brother's best friend. And um, we used to play tennis together, which all went quite well until I beat him one week and then that didn't work anymore. But anyway, in the midst of all this, he asked me out. Right, I was 13, and ringing through my mind was that you mustn't be yoked with unbelievers. So at 13, I said, I can't. I can't do that. Now, you can make of that what you want to, but something within me said, this is what I have been taught, and this is how I understand it, and this is the decision that I am making and you know what, in truth, if we'd gone out to the cinema two times, it would have probably been something and nothing, and it wouldn't have mattered. But something in my heart, even then, said, I submit to God first. And really, that's what this is about. It's about making that choice in distinctiveness and holiness. Please, if your experience is different, don't feel judged by my story. I don't want you to do that. I want you to hear that this is about the choices we make around distinctiveness and holiness that say, I put God first here. And it is so easy in so many different ways in our lives to, to conform to the standards of the world that's around us. And we have endless choices every single day around that. Most of them are little choices. Some of them are bigger. Are we going to say yes to God first when he calls us to do that? And then in verse 31, it says, When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel 
all debts. To me, this is something about prioritizing God's worship, putting him first, choosing to trust, choosing to take the Sabbath again, which presumably they hadn't been doing. Because on the Sabbath, we rest because God rests, because we trust him that he's capable of keeping the world going whilst we have a rest for a day. Don't we? They chose to have time for recreation. They chose to turn from idolatry to worship God. They chose to live justly by bringing that jubilee principle back into their experience again. The worshipping of God, putting him first, practically through the Sabbath and living justly as well as singing, was key. And then in verse 32, they said, we assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festivals, appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. They decided that they would fulfill their financial obligations to God's work. An expression of obedience of holiness, of worship, of trust. They gave in the sense of the tithing of what had been required of them. They gave in terms of their sacrifices. They were stewards of what God had given to them. Alan Redpath, who was a great preacher in ye olden-y days, said this, I honestly believe that a great part of revival is faithfulness in giving. Disobedience implies spiritual poverty, leads to spiritual poverty. Repentance is the key to revival, but he said, and he knew a lot, that giving also, because giving says something about our hearts in the same way that repentance says something about our hearts, in the same way that prioritizing God in worship says something about our hearts. And when our hearts are in the right place with God, then he can meet us in whichever way he wants. Verse 39, they said, we will not neglect the house of God. In terms of giving, in attendance, in involvement, in prayer, in bringing other people. We have been talking in these last weeks about building walls and restoring lives. The greatest tragedy would be that we restore the house, but we neglect our lives with God, wouldn't it? That would be the greatest tragedy, because the whole purpose for Nehemiah and the people was that they rebuilt the walls so that they could reestablish their identity as the people of God, so that they could start living under the law again, so that they could start restart worshipping God in the way that they wanted to again, so that they could be God shining light to the nations to draw others to him. And that's what we need, doesn't it? That we continue on this journey following Jesus, of being conformed to his likeness, of being renewed in our identity as the people of God, finding that as our prime identity, of being a community of people who show love and grace and mercy, who are a light in our community for God and his glory, his kingdom, so that people get to know him. That's what it's for. Rebuilding walls, restoring lives, ours and others as they come to meet him. So that's our prayer, that we might be those people. So I encourage you in that again today. Amen.